Welcome to my podcast, All Things Agriculture. I'm your host, Eric Carey, and thank you for tuning in. On this podcast, get to know those who work in agriculture on a daily basis. Find out what they do, the challenges and opportunities they face, and what they think the future holds for agriculture. You'll also have a chance to hear what they do for fun when they aren't working hard to feed the world. If you're watching on YouTube, please consider subscribing to my channel and leaving a thumbs up and a comment below. If you prefer the audio version, you can listen for free on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. And if you'd like to get in contact with me, please email me at allthingsagr at gmail.com. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to All Things Agriculture Podcast. I'm your host, Eric. Thanks for joining us, and today I'm delighted to have Jason. Jason, Jason Henry, excuse me. Jason, how's it going, yeah. bud? Good, how are you? Good, good. Good to see you. It's been, we were talking, it's been a it's long been while. Almost six years, hard to believe. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think, we saw each other at a farm bureau back in Albany, you yes. might have still been in college, though. No, I wasn't. I was out of college um, probably a few years ago, though. Connor and I were there, my cousin. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember Kelder and I met up with Kelder at the at, with your cousin at the bar. And, yep. And you, so <laughs> surprising, right? <laughs> Made it a little easier to see some familiar faces there. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, um, just to, I guess, roll right into it. You're a greenhouse. I mean, I guess you go ahead. Yep. Um, so I'm fourth generation back on my family's wholesale greenhouse operation. Um, so our bread and butter is the, the wholesale greenhouses. Um, today we're running just over 80,000 square feet of, of greenhouses. Um, and we're also a, a wholesale vegetable farm. And we do wholesale poinsettia plants in the wintertime. And um, our newest venture today is hydroponic greens lettuce so that's what we're experimenting with right now but i'm uh i'm super psyched to be here your your podcast has become part of my my weekly ritual and i just i love what you're doing here and i'll tell you what it's it's right up there with uh with yellowstone when yellowstone streams on on television i am uh, absolutely psyched to wait for the the next episode and uh that's what you're doing here today i'm Every week in the in the greenhouses, I'm I'm waiting for that next episode to get posted, and uh, absolutely thrilled to to watch them. So, I'm happy to be here. I'm I'm very flattered. Thank you, Jason. So you got you got the little alert on YouTube that pops up when it says a new episode <laughs> going, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, no, thank, I I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I never know the, the feedback I get back. Like you, you know, sent me a message. You know. Thank you know, saying, Hey, I've been watching it. I really appreciate stuff like that. It gives me an idea of who's listening. So thank you. You're welcome. No worries. So yeah, I guess the background of your farm, you're what, what generation again? So I'm, I'm fourth generation of my family to be back there farming today. Um, what the farm started as was a, a wholesale vegetable farm, field production, veggies, hand harvest, um, your, your bell peppers, your, your cucumbers, your zucchini, uh, lettuce, cabbage, cauli, that sort of thing. And it, it would have been my grandfather that 
slowly transitioned it into greenhouses. And he, so he got the ball rolling on the greenhouse end of things. And over the years, the, the wholesale greenhouse end of things has become the bread and butter of the operation. So 95% of the business today is, is greenhouses. We're still doing a little bit of field production vegetables, trying to get away from it because of inputs, labor especially, going up. Um, it's very hard to make hand harvest vegetables cash flow today. And you know all about that with, with the dairy industry. Yeah, so, um, you know, we're trying to be creative, finding new, new ideas, uh, new crops to put on our, on our acres um, that can potentially be a little more profitable. So the, the breakdown, it's the, um, <clears throat> if you were to look at acreage of greenhouse versus actual just, you know. So the, the farm itself uh, sits on about 70 acres. Uh, the, the greenhouses, like I said, uh, we have just about over 80,000 square feet of greenhouse. So it's, it's roughly two acres of, of greenhouse uh, space. So we have 10 individual structures um, ranging from, we have, we have one structure that's left over from the 1970s. It's a Cornell house, we call it. It's a Cornell design. Um, the, the entire farm used to be these Cornell houses, and through the years we've slowly been updating. So there's one left at this time, and we have plans to take it down in the near future. Um, and then we have uh, some freestanding greenhouses. Uh, they, they're usually 30 feet wide by 150 feet long. And then what you usually see being built today are called gutter connect greenhouses. Um, they're several bays wide. So when I say a bay, a bay is usually roughly 21 feet wide, and then they're, they're attached at the gutter. So our greenhouses today are usually three or four bays wide by about 156 feet long. So for example, the newest greenhouse we just built a few years back is roughly 80 feet wide by 156 feet long. So it's, it's just over 15,000 square feet of space. Wow. That's, and that's really for the greenhouse business, it's square footage, right? Square footage. Money is or space is money. Sorry. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and the older greenhouses, I guess I'll get into a little bit of uh, greenhouse design. The older greenhouses were, you know, very small, very short, um, you know, maybe 10, 12 feet high where today's greenhouses, when you build them, you want to build them. A little higher the, the higher your greenhouse is the more efficiently it'll shed heat the the cooler you can keep your greenhouse crop so today we're we're building our greenhouses 14 foot to the gutter and then they they get higher from that when you go to the peak so okay 14 foot's usually our minimum that allows us to shed heat very very efficiently and keep our our crop down at the ground level cool in the in the hot spring and summer days yeah how hot can those things get when the so, sun is blazing even today, for example, it was 32 degrees and sunny. Uh, the heat doesn't have to be on in the greenhouse. It'll be up to 80, 90 degrees in the greenhouse just with the natural sunlight coming in. Wow. So they heat up in a hurry, and that's why we need to make sure we can ventilate the greenhouses. So uh, today, most of our greenhouses are naturally ventilated. So at the peak, there's a vent, and that vent will, will open roughly four foot right there at the peak to shed the, the heat out of the greenhouse there. It's the most efficient way to shed heat right there at the peak. 
heat rises so it's all building up in the top of the greenhouse there so when the computer calls for for ventilation that peak will open up the the heat will vent out and we'll get that greenhouse temperature back down to where it needs to be so it's all computer controlled okay that <clears throat> and that computer is obviously is is it set to keep it within so many degrees yeah so we'll for example we'll have the, the thermostat you know set at 68 degrees and then we'll we'll tell the computer to start venting the greenhouse when it hits maybe 75 degrees the vents will open up um the the greenhouse computer can also tell when it starts to rain so if a heavy rain starts coming down and the vents are open that heavy rain could affect your greenhouse crop it could come down onto your greenhouse crop and effectively ruin it so the computer will tell the vent to close down in a hurry to to keep the rain from coming in the greenhouse so the the onboard systems in the the greenhouse are, are very intelligent and they they help us run the operation so before all the way back when it would be manual. your great your that your force that would be your great grandfather right and mm-hmm. he was the one who he transitioned my my grandfather your did. grandfather mm-hmm. transitioned okay Kenny. and so yep. when he first did them it was all temperature yeah just, you had to be there every day yeah. you know making your rounds going in all the greenhouses turning on it would have been probably exhaust fans big big exhaust fans that would would pull fresh air into the greenhouse to cool it down where today we're trying to get away from those energy eaters and and use the natural ventilation okay yeah. kind of a lot of ways it's like a it's like building a barn for cows yeah high yeah, side walls natural mm-hmm. ventilation open mm-hmm. peak yeah. and uh you'll see two different designs really um you can use a, a double poly system where you have your steel frame and then you cover your greenhouse with two layers of plastic we call it poly and then you inflate that poly essentially like a balloon so there's there's 10 inches of air in between that that poly layers and that acts as your insulation so that helps keep your greenhouse warm in the winter or uh, and then um, the other option arguably a a better growing environment is glass greenhouses Uh, much more expensive to build um, but better light penetration for your greenhouse crop so You'll see a lot of growers go that route as well. We do have one one glass structure. Um, a lot of maintenance when your glass panels break. So our our glass house, uh, the the panels are roughly six feet wide by ten feet long. So we usually break a panel at least once a year, and when you have to replace a panel, it's a, it's an absolute bear. Um, so high maintenance, but a nice growing environment very expensive so what we're usually running today are the poly structures double layer poly and the poly's rated for about five to six years so every five to six years you got to switch out the poly which is which is a job but it's manageable yeah mm-hmm. kind of there's no perfect even in the perfect environment you can create in a greenhouse the right. greenhouse is still still needs maintenance yeah mm-hmm. what are what about like storm wise are those are they pretty well uh immune to most storms wind and all that so our our biggest worry today is snow load um the november storm you remember that came back that came through back in 2014 mm-hmm. i believe and a lot of eden valley where i'm from is is greenhouse production so a lot of growers in Eden Valley lost structures in that storm. 
we had seven feet of snow in three days and a lot of the structures just couldn't handle it. Um, ourselves personally, we didn't lose any structures. My, my father was quick to the game. He, he turned on the heat in all the greenhouses to shed the snow and uh, was, was able to save all of our structures. So that's our main concern today when building is snow load capacity and our, our newest designs the uh, the trusses are every four feet, so they're they're beefed up, and under the gutter there's a there's a steel beam for the gutter to rest on. If there's a snow load in the gutter, the gutter will come down on that steel beam for support. So they're they're bulletproof when it comes to snow load now. And yeah. that's that's what we're worried about. Yeah, that's. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have to turning the cranking the heat up? Could you possibly damage the plants, or are you just kind of like it's worth? It's worth getting the snow off because we could lose the whole structure. So at the time of the November storm, most of our houses were empty. Okay. Um, we were doing poinsettias at the time, so poinsettias usually take up three of our three or four of our ten structures, and then the rest are empty um, with the heat off. So obviously the poinsettia houses, the heat was already on, so they were fine in the snow. But the the rest of the structures where the heat was off, we got all the heat turned on in those, so they would start shedding the snow rapidly. Yeah. So I guess in terms of <clears throat> what you're growing when, like if you went different times of the year, what what's growing throughout your greenhouses? Okay. So like I said, our, our bread and butter is the greenhouse and our main time of year is the spring. So ornamental floriculture, bedding plants um, that you see for sale in May uh, for your gardens. Um, we usually, we start that season in November. We start bringing in Unrooted cuttings, we call them. They're, they're a growing meristem and a couple leaves um, to begin the, the growing process. So we bring those unrooted cuttings in. They're, they're coming in from all over the world, Guatemala, Mexico, you name it. Um, we bring them into the farm, and we, we stick the unrooted cutting in soil media, and we place them on a, a heated bench. The, the bench is heated with hot water, and we supply them with a, a constant mist uh, to keep the, the unrooted cutting moist and that'll encourage germination of the unrooted cutting. So um, we usually keep the bench around 70 degrees to keep the soil warm and the mist comes on every 20 minutes for eight seconds and after a week 10 days has gone by you'll have a, a rooted cutting that we can then transplant up into larger pots or hanging baskets you name it. So that's one of the ways we bring plant material in. Uh, another way is starting from seed. Obviously, we start a lot of our plant material from seed. Um, and we have a mechanized seeder to do so. Uh, it's a, a robot on the farm. We can seed a, a tray of 500 plants in, in roughly 30 seconds. So it, it shoots them right through. Wow. Yeah, uh, it's a pretty cool little machine. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a vacuum seeder is what it's called. Um, and you have to be there next to it assisting it but but it's it's doing the bulk of the work for you where if you were to manually seed 500 seeds in a tray it would it would take you well over 10 minutes so it's it's saving a lot of time wow uh, that's incredible and uh so start from seeds start from unrooted cuttings and then we we also buy in rooted cuttings which is more expensive but depending on the the plant variety or what time of year it is in the spring we we may buy in rooted cuttings 
Um, so in, in November, we would, we would be seeding, we would be sticking unrooted cuttings. And then this time of year, we'd be bringing in rooted cuttings um, for plant material. So a few different ways to get your, your plant material started. Um, so the season begins in November, like I said, and then February, March, it really starts ramping up and March, April, May were, were absolute hell week. It's, it's very busy. Um, it's my, my folks and I, um, on the farm primarily. And in the spring we bring in about 15 seasonal employees to help us around the greenhouses and uh, pack orders and get them out the door and we ship all our own product uh, throughout the western part of the state northern pennsylvania um, and uh, we're just we're just trying to beautify western new york with uh, some color after our dreary winters you know so um, that's uh our, our main goal we supply a lot of breweries a lot of retail centers um, holiday valley ski resort is one of our top clients um, so yeah so it's <clears throat> so a lot of your your product your plants end up staying local then it's mm -hmm. not like they're going and they aren't going it sounds like they aren't going to like a home depot or a walmart no. they're going to no nope. we uh primarily small retail centers um garden clubs are a huge client of ours um a lot of garden club sales uh and then like i said the the breweries are coming on strong a lot of breweries popping up in the area and uh yeah, so we do a three-hour radius for shipping, so that keeps us in the western part of the state and, and Pennsylvania, yeah. Last year, the COVID, did that screw a lot of stuff up? or We were very concerned uh, about how the season would go, but the season did end up going very well. We were, we were lucky. Um, sales stayed strong all the way through, price stayed up. So we came out of it very well, uh, very fortunate. It's mm -hmm. good to hear. Yeah, I didn't know if maybe if people were staying home, they said, "Oh, I'll do more gardening or I'll you know do more." And that's exactly what happened. That's people, what happened. People were home. They they wanted to garden. It was one of the things they they could do, and uh, it it helped sales out very much. So yeah, even though the businesses might not have been open, but right. they could still. Uh, that's that's good to hear. Was that was that a pretty in terms of greenhouse? Was that pretty common where a lot of, the, like you said, your area is a lot of greenhouse. Was, was everyone doing pretty well for them? Yeah, everyone part? everyone did well. They had a good spring. Um, cousins of mine, they do Easter plants. So that was earlier in the spring, obviously, and it, it wasn't a good good season for Easter plants because, you know, most of your Easter plant sales are for churches, um, and churches obviously weren't, weren't in session. So yeah. it, it very much hurt their sales. Um, but fortunately, uh, the, the spring ornamental crops was strong, so they were able to rebound and, and come back from that. So when the spring flush, I guess I'll call it that is past is summertime. Are you doing, um, like what's the protocol in the summer for growing So yeah, stuff? the, the ornamental bedding plant season takes us from November through June, uh, we've shipped all of our product out in May and cleaned up by mid-June. And that is usually when we're, we're trying to transplant all of our, our vegetable plants into the fields. Um, we're, we're huge into bell peppers and summer squash and tomatoes. And we do everything on raised mulch and drip tape. So it's all drip irrigation. Um, very, very efficient way of irrigating. 
Um, so we, we go into the fields, we moldboard plow, we disc, we drag, and then we have a, a mulch layer machine that simultaneously rolls out the black mulch plastic with our drip irrigation tape. So we keep, keep everything on raised beds to help with um, rainwater. It sheds the rainwater very well into the valleys rather than where the plants are. And, and then the, the drip tape just makes for the most efficient way of, of watering our plants rather than overhead irrigation. Um, so we're able to set everything up on drip tape and with turn of a valve, we're watering the entire farm and, and uh, off we go. Since you have so much roof space, do you catch rainwater at no, all? No, we've thought about it, but haven't gotten there yet, no. Didn't it, this is kind of off on a little tangent, but when you were at Cornell, I think if I remember right, didn't you internship in North Carolina and work mm. for a, a greenhouse place? I did. Didn't they have so much roofing, they collected all the rainwater? Yeah, all of their... Okay, so... Maybe you want to get into that later, or you uh, go ahead if you we want. We can get into it now. Um I interned for Metrolina. It's in North Carolina, like you said, in Huntersville. And they're the, the largest greenhouse company in the U.S. Um, and when, when we're talking acreage, uh, they're, it's, it's one greenhouse, one structure, and it's today it's well over 250 acres. So mm-hmm. it's, it's one structure. Once you're in the facility, you never have to leave. You never, never have to step foot outside. And... Uh, it's it's unbelievable. It's it's set in a valley, so when you pull up to it, it, it almost looks like a pond because the structure's all glass, so it, it, it you'd swear it's a pond when you're rolling up on it. And the street it's on, it's a forty five mile an hour street. And when you're when you're coming up to the greenhouse and, and passing it, it takes you over two minutes to pass the facility at fifty miles an hour. So you can picture driving at fifty miles an hour past this greenhouse. And you're looking at it for two minutes out the window until you're past it. And it's so, one building. How one the building. hell do you, how do mm-hmm. they add on to it? So greenhouses are, are designed with bays. So when you want to expand, you can just basically tear down the side of the greenhouse and keep connecting bays okay. to the greenhouse. Um, wild operation. So first order of business when I got there was was picking out a beach cruiser bicycle to, to get around on uh, everyone's riding around on beach cruisers it's all concrete so it's uh it's pretty sweet living um and just amazing facility uh three shifts 24 hours a day uh, they're they're doing wholesale ornamental plants as well for for sale in the spring um, but who they're supplying is walmart east coast so um, you'll see their trucks going up and down East Coast, supplying the Walmart superstores. Uh, great experience, uh, cutting-edge technology. They're the, they're the leaders in, in greenhouse design and technology. Um, so it was, it was great to see everything they had and, and work with everything they had. Um, but it, it certainly made me appreciate the, the small mom-and-pop operation, you know, um, that I grew up in and it, it gave me the, the want and need to, to maintain what we have and keep it going for future generations. Um, but amazing experience down there. Um, they, they took it to a whole new level. Everything was automated, mechanized. Uh, as soon as the, the pot or hanging basket was planted, it was placed on a bench and it wouldn't be touched by a human hand until it was being shipped out the door. So, 
um, very, very efficient place. Automation mm -hmm. to a T. Yes. And when I say bays of a greenhouse, you know, usually 20, 21 feet wide, their bays were a little wider, around 30 feet wide. And for every bay of their greenhouse, they would have a crane in the bay that it was basically a metal truss uh, framework that would span the bay. And they called them cranes. They reached equipped with a diesel engine. Um, and these, these cranes would go up and down the bays and grab tables of, of, of flowers that would be on the, the floor of the bay and transport the, the flowers around the greenhouse. It was just absolutely mind-blowing to, to witness. And they would even utilize these cranes for, for spraying pesticides, herbicides, um, whatever needed to be done. And it, it wasn't even so much spraying anymore. They were bringing um, crop dusting into the greenhouse. If you can think of a, an airplane out west crop dusting a, a cornfield, that's basically what they were doing in this greenhouse. This crane would grab their sprayer unit and transport it up and down the bay, and they would essentially crop dust their, their floral crop. So it was a very effective way of spraying. Um, they, could, they could get it done in a timely fashion. So Holy. pretty cool. Wow. Mm -hmm. I can't even think. 250 acres. 250 acres under glass. Yep. That is insane. Mm -hmm. Wow. Absolutely unreal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Boy, you, you have two acres, right? Two and acres. That, that's a lot to manage, <laughs> right? For I my mean, dad and I, it's plenty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Holy. Wow. And, you know, we have, we have every hope and intention to expand, but within reason. Yeah. You know, we, we always want to be progressive, but maintain that mom and pop essence of the farm mm -hmm. and be able to, you know, have our family out on the farm and raise our kids out on the farm. And, you know, I, I want the same for, for my kiddos growing up as, as I had growing up. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. Are they just going to keep going with it? You think, is there enough room where they are to just, they can expand. Yep. They can keep, they mm -hmm. just have to buy up the, or mm -hmm. they own, may they own the land. Cause they were, they were roughly 200 acres when I was there would have been seven years ago. And today, seven years ago, they're already over 250 acres. So they've already added 50 acres plus. So they're open almost 10 acres a year then. So yeah. if you, if you go, but they're, by. they're adding blocks of 50 acres. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, to supply Walmart, you need a yep. lot of area. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's incredible. But yeah, kind of back to the water though. They have so much Yes, yeah, so there's so, so much watershed off the, the greenhouses that they're bringing it all back to a collection pond and actually using this rainwater for irrigation in the greenhouse. So it, it's pumped through filters and it's sanitized and it's, it's then utilized as their irrigation water. So it's a very efficient recycling system. Um, takes a lot of money to get it set up, though. It's, yeah. it's uh, very cool. You were saying how you and your dad thought about doing mm -hmm. it. What's the, is it just, it's a big investment or it's just, you know, you, oh, it's easy. You just collect them, put in, you know, it's not as easy as it sounds. Big investment and we got to find the time to do it too. Yeah. It's uh, be something we'd have to do in the summer months when we're a little slower, when we're usually building greenhouse or main, maintaining our greenhouses. So it's certainly something to think about though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess water at least in this part of the country isn't usually usually an mm -hmm. issue mm -hmm. this last year was kind of an anomaly but right right so it's something to think about yeah. certainly mm -hmm. 
So what else in terms of down the road, do you have any plans for the greenhouse or the farm or what, what are your thoughts? Well, so like I said, the, the farm started as a, a vegetable production, wholesale vegetable production farm. And today with, with labor and inputs constantly going up, it's so hard to, to cash flow our vegetables. So we're, we're constantly looking for new ideas, new crops to put on our acreage outside um, rather than our, our vegetables. So two years ago, 2019, everyone probably knows the farm bill passed the um, CBD hemp in the state. So we were willing to take a gamble, gamble and, and dip our toes in it. And we decided to apply for our license to, to grow CBD hemp. And we were granted the license, much to my disbelief, because our farm actually backs up right to a, a development. So there's plenty of houses right near our farm. Um, and I know they take that into consideration when handing out the licenses because, uh, you know, everyday goers coming onto your farm or, you know, getting exposed to the hemp. Um, but we were accepted. So we decided to go forward with planting our vegetable production acre acreage with, with CBD hemp. So it was, a it was a debacle. I can, I can certainly get into it. Um, we decided to plant four acres of hemp just to be safe. We knew it was it. knew we knew we were potentially throwing the money away. We didn't know if it was going to be successful or not, but we had to try. Um, so when growing hemp for CBD, you had two options. You could either grow what they called an auto flower variety, which is a 75 day crop, no matter what the sun's doing. The day you seed it, it needs 75 days to finish out and it's ready to go. Whether it's raining, whether it's sunny, cold, hot, doesn't matter. And then your other option is a full season hemp plant, which you plant in, in June and it would take you all the way through fall, late, late fall, October, November, November, you'd be harvesting. And these full season hemp, hemp plants are, are much larger. They're essentially the size of a Christmas tree. So they need to be spaced out much farther, five, six foot spacing versus this auto flower variety, the 75 day crop, it gets roughly three feet tall. So they only require a, a two foot spacing. So you can fit many more of this auto flower variety in the four acres than you can the full season variety. So the auto flower variety was most appealing to us in that we'd be off of it in 75 days. We wouldn't have to worry about it all the way through fall. And we knew we could fit more in the acreage and possibly get more flower off of, off of the acreage. So we went forward with the, the auto flower. So we decided to get feminized seed. So it was guaranteed to be all female seed coming from the, the seed supplier. Um, again, you have if two options when buying seed. You can buy feminized, all females, or you can buy unfeminized seed which is a 50-50 mix of, of male-female. Uh, when growing hemp, you want, you want all female seed. You want all ladies in the field, um, much like your dairy. So <laughs> buying feminized seed while you're getting all fem female seed, it's very expensive to, to make that guarantee. So you're, you're paying for that convenience. 
Yeah. Um, so we were paying roughly a dollar fifty per seed, which was astronomical to us. We're we're used to buying thousands of vegetable seeds for ten dollars, you know. Uh, where for every hemp seed we brought in, we were paying a dollar fifty. So we we planted roughly ten thousand hemp plants in our in our fields out back. So you can imagine the the seed cost up front was pretty hefty. Um, and then for the guys that plant unfeminized, much cheaper, you're talking 30, 40, 50 cents per seed. But if you're going out planting four acres, you can pretty much guarantee that two acres of what you, what you plant is going to be useless. They're going to be all males and you'll have to get into the field and, and pull the males. Why would they even give you that option? Save cost. Okay. Up front, it's much cheaper. But the back and that's, it- that's appealing to to many people is saving that seed cost, but you ultimately end up paying for it on the back end when you have your guys out in the field searching for male plants, pulling them out, you know, load them up on your, your wagon, tractor, gator, whatever you have, and they have to be burned. So um, your labor bill is going to go skyrocket. So it's, it's really, it, it's, it's nice up front, but in the end, it's not Correct. a savings. Right. Not at all. You're going to, you're going to pay for it. Yeah. Um, so the reason they want all females is obviously because the female plant is producing the iconic bud and the bud is what we want for the CBD oil. Um, and the male plants produce pollen. So they don't want the male plants in the field because if the pollen's released, it's going to fertilize the females and it's then going to send the females into seed production. So rather than producing the flower, they're going to produce seed. Okay, so it ultimately ruins your your CBD crop. So even with the the feminized seed, they still had a disclaimer that one in every 2000 seeds would be a male. So we had to go into it knowing that we could ultimately find some male plants. So every other day we would walk the fields scouting for male plants. And we we did find five male plants out of the 10,000 plants we had. So you have to make sure to get these male plants out of the field before they release their pollen and pollinate your females. Because if they pollinate your females, they're going to go to seed production rather than your bud and ruin your crop. Game over. Mm -hmm. So, and the, the hemp ultimately, it fit into our production very well because we were able to plant it on our, our raised mulch beds with our drip irrigation. So we had all the equipment sitting on the farm ready to go. Um, the investment wasn't wasn't crazy to get into hemp. Um, so it, it made sense for us. And uh, we put the entire plot in a six-foot electric fence. We were worried about um, especially deer getting into the plot. Uh, deer do like to feed on hemp plants. And, uh, and then uh, we weren't sure how the uh, community would take to it either if they were, if they would try to get in or, or uh, theft is definitely an issue in the CBD hemp market. So um, we were trying to prevent any, any issue. They probably don't anticipate they're stealing hemp. I would imagine (laughs) that's not their, their end game. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all, but I'm sure they thought they were getting high. So that's totally fine. It smells, there's quite an odor, isn't it? 
looking at a CBD hemp plant, you would you would not be able to tell the difference between the hemp and and a marijuana plant. Okay, they look virtually identical, and especially in the evening, they they reek of yeah. reefer. So. My, my wife would find it hilarious. We'd pull up to the farm, you know, just in the vicinity of the farm, and it would reek of, of skunk. So <laughs> pretty funny. Um, and pretty much all of Eden Valley was into CBD hemp production. So okay. it was just everywhere. There was hundreds of acres of CBD hemp in the valley. Um, so it was, uh, it was different. Uh, the community was uh, very interested to see what was going on. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so we had it in the six foot electric fence and then we, you know, we took a page out of the movies and planted a cornfield around the entire plot as well. So it was, it was <laughs> smack dab in the middle of a cornfield. So, um, hard to find, uh, but very effective. So, um, so yeah, so we were, we were scouting for males, making sure to get the males out of the crop. Um, it was a 70, 75 day crop, like I said. So we, we planted it in June and it was ready to harvest mid May or sorry, mid August. Um, we got in there with our equipment. It's harvested by hand. Um, basically clippers. Um, you come out covered in, in black oil, sticky black oil. Oh. Um, so when you're clipping, you're just clipping the you're the clipping. Buds? Nope. You're you're clipping the stock of the plant right at the soil level. Okay. So you're, you're taking the entire plant. Okay. Out of the field, um, loaded it into bins and straight off to our processor um, for processing. So they would then shuck the stock of all the buds and send the buds off to processing, whether it be with ethanol extraction or CO two. So. So our auto flowers, we had a beautiful crop come off our our field production, uh, ten thousand plants off to the processor. It was mid August at the time, um, still plenty of uh, growing time in the season, and we had some vacant greenhouses sitting there. So my dad and I got to talking, and we figured, you know, why not go all in and, and do a greenhouse crop, and try to plant hemp in the greenhouse and and see how it goes. So we. We bought in more autoflower seed and seeded it right into two-gallon pots, two-gallon plastic containers. Um, we put roughly 7,500 of them in our in our newest greenhouse, all on trickle drip irrigation. Um, and at this point, much of Eden Valley, some other growers had uh, full-season hemp plants going. So they were still about halfway through their growing cycle at this point. Um, to be finished off in the fall. So a lot of unfeminized seed was out there in the valley and farmers had to be out there pulling the male plants out, obviously, so they didn't, didn't release their pollen and, and pollinate the females. And it's next to impossible to, to make sure to get all the, the male plants out. So naturally, some of the male plants started releasing pollen, right? And... It only takes one male plant within 20 miles of a, a female to to pollinate it. So if the winds move in the right direction, it's it's gonna get to your female plant. And the pollen got into our greenhouse oh. and it it pollinated our entire greenhouse crop. So the the entire crop was ruined um, by November. It was ruined. Yeah. So, so that investment was straight down the tubes. Um, so it it's. It's difficult when you got an unfeminized seed out there. It's, it's difficult to 
uh, ensure a successful crop. So I guess the fact that you took your crop off so early, the first, since you had the shorter day compared to the longer day, you're able to get that out before must be the later day crop was the males in return up to sudden. There's exactly. Yeah. And that was kind of our takeaway messages. Um, the auto flower is definitely a good move because you plant and harvest it before the full seasons have released their pollen. So it, it, it's very effective in getting a successful crop off. Wow. Um, yeah. So how do they work in the greenhouse compared to outdoors? Was there any difference? You think they did better or worse or your, your goal in the greenhouse is to create a perfect growing environment. So the, the plants weren't quite as bulky, quite as dense because when they're out in the elements in the wind and the rain, they, they bulk up, they, they're much more dense. Um, so the, the biomass was a lot lighter in the greenhouse, but still, a still a nice tall plant. Um, heading into the fall until it got pollinated and all of our buds started going to seed pods and and uh yeah just a lousy day when we saw that happening so it was no fault of our own um it's just uh how things ended up going so if if you guys had that then i mean the whole valley Mm -hmm. must have been pollination issues all over and out in the fields now all these females that went to seed they're going to start dropping the seed right so you're going to have volunteers popping up the next season, the next year. So it will be very difficult to get a successful hemp crop off when you're talking all the seed that's been dropped in the valley now. So, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you almost have to, you almost have to like stop and let it mm-hmm. die off. Don't you? I mean, right. But you can't kill it all. It's always going to be there. Yeah. Won't it? I mean, you could kill it <laughs> off if you were actively scouting for it. Yeah. But. But it's a lot of work. And uh, how far are those seeds are those like wind driven, or, or are they just basically no? They're long? they're just dropping. Okay, yep. they're just dropping. Um, but yeah, and and that wasn't the only issue. Uh, the contract that we had with our processor um, stated that the farmer would be paid when the product was off to market. So we, you know, our first crop was successful. We got it out of the field. We got it to the processor. Um, the processor did his end of things, got it off to market, and we never got paid. So um, the money never came in, and that's just another reason why we didn't do it this season. Um, the The industry is just so new, and there's so few processors out there um, that it it's just unreliable at this point. And uh, hopefully New York State will grant some more processing licenses so more processors can get um, into it and... Uh, maybe make the industry a little more reliable. So, so you think there's hope for it going absolutely. forward? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I, yeah, a couple of years ago it was all the rave and mm-hmm. you heard about people doing it, but then at the same time it's, it was the processing. Who's going to process it? Right. Who's gonna, that and, was always uh, the issue. I don't know anything about not, the seed. Not granting any more processing licenses. So until they do that, it's going to be difficult. wonder why that is. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a very fun experience. Um, the hemp it's it's different than our our vegetables in that it's got a very sensitive tap root the main the main root coming off of the plant uh, they call it the tap root and extremely sensitive so usually when we plant a, a vegetable seed in a tray we let it grow for a month or so 30 40 days to get a nice strong root ball the you know the transplant will be about six inches tall when we put it in the field um, with our equipment and uh, we can know that we've got a nice, strong transplant out there 
in the elements that'll that'll take to the conditions where the hemp they from the day you seed the hemp plant in the soil media in the greenhouse they want it transplanted out into the field within seven days um, because if that tap root senses any sort of resistance whether it be the bottom of a pot or the bottom of a tray it's going to stunt the plant so we were kind of reluctant to believe that and we didn't want to put the hemp plant out in the field when it was such a, a young seedling, you know, half inch, one inch tall, five, six days old. So we experimented with it. We, we did half the crop. We transplanted half the crop into the, the field within that seven days. And then the, the other half of the crop, we, we let go two weeks and then we transplanted it into the field at two weeks. And just like the seed supplier said, sure enough, the half of the crop that we had waited the two weeks on stunted because that tap root uh, sensed some resistance against the pot. So where we should have gotten three foot tall plants, we were getting two foot tall plants. Okay. Um, so a little shorter than they should have been, um, but still successful in the end as, as far as creating bud. So, um, you didn't run into that problem in the greenhouse, when you, or is that why you use such large pots? Exactly. We we used a large pot from the get-go so the, the plant would have enough space to, to grow from the start. So it wasn't an issue in the greenhouse. Um, but yeah, when we're when we're transplanting out into the fields, we want a nice strong transplant. You know, we don't have to we don't want to have to worry about it when there's a storm coming through or or whatnot. So um but sure enough, they're entirely correct in getting that transplant out into the field ASAP within within a week. It's incredible. It's so hardy at mm-hmm. such a young age. That right. just boggles my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you get a rainstorm coming through, you know, driving down into the soil. It, it almost creates a mud layer that, that crusts over the transplant. So it, it can cause an, an issue um, in that plant being successful. So we're, you know, always worried about that. Um, but we would have been better off getting them all out within that week, for sure. Huh. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was quite a, quite a new experience yep. then. With absolutely. The... <laughs> mm-hmm. But you think eventually would you get back into it once it's kind of more developed? It's a more developed industry. Yeah. If there's if if there's more processors around that we can rely on and uh, the the industry stabilizes a little bit, yeah, we could certainly think about it. Um, because uh, field production produce just isn't. It's not cash flowing today, and it's much like the dairy industry. You bust ass every day to, um, you know, and it's just hard to make ends meet sometimes. But um, the farmer's resilient. You knock him down, and he gets back up, and he's the eternal optimist. So um, you just pray that tomorrow's going to be better, and you move on. So Sounds like your grandfather had a pretty good vision for you know transitioning into the mm-hmm. greenhouse and getting away from the field crop yeah the greenhouses have been great um it's it's our bread and butter it's what we love to do um it's a very very nice operation that we enjoy so it's got to be nice working in december january when it's yeah when, when it's uh 10 out. 20 degrees and snowy it's 75 and sunny in the greenhouse always <laughs> so so we <laughs> We love it. We feel bad for the dairy farmers that are out in the cold barns. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) scraping the frozen shit off the concrete floor, Uh, frozen water. Yeah, I'm sure you have your deal of, uh, you know, I guess if uh, if something were to break in a greenhouse, like during the winter time, that would be disastrous. Yeah, no good. Um, If you lose heat, 
in the greenhouses when you have a crop in there, it's uh, disastrous. So all of our greenhouses are on forced air, natural gas uh, unit heaters. And uh, there's always several unit heaters in a greenhouse just in case one's to go down. You've got backup. Um, but yeah, always, always a concern is your heat. That's our main concern when the power goes out. We make sure to have a standby generator on, on site to keep the heat going and to keep the inflators going that inflate the, the double layers of poly. We want to make sure those stay inflated because if, uh, if the power goes out and we lose inflation and the windstorms to come through, it could rip that poly right off the greenhouse structures and expose your crop. We used to have a greenhouse for the calves. Mm-hmm. My parents built it back in the late 90s. Sure. And let's see, I think we, it's just a 30 by 100 foot, you know, just a single walkway in the middle of calves on each end. Yep. And I think we replaced the roof. Oh, man. Two or tw- at least twice. It was a double layered, you know, had the mm-hmm. fan. And if, like you said, you just lose like the power. The gr- yeah, the, the roof mm-hmm. would come down and you get a windstorm and it ripped. I think once that way in a windstorm, it tore right off. And then one time the actual, you know, the out, the outer layer ripped off mm-hmm. completely. And we went a couple months with just the single the, layer, the single layer yeah, expensive to heat. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't, you don't heat it or it anything. Heated, yeah. It's not heated, but it was just really nervous. Cause I can't remember what time of year it was, but you get a wind and you know, it's just that mm-hmm. little thin, it's not the outer layer where it's, it's built to withstand the elements. Sure. And, mm-hmm. I, like I said, I think it was by the third tear in the roof. You know, we were just kind of like, all right, this thing's almost 20 years old. I think there's, you know, we can move on. So we end up, mm-hmm. we end up selling it. We had any issue at selling it. We sold some guy in Rochester. And the poly? The, the, the whole, whole greenhouse, structure? yeah. Yeah, no had kidding. trusses and everything mm-hmm. on it. And it was, it was a mm-hmm. nice greenhouse. Just it would, you know, moved on to mm-hmm. a stick built. Okay. But yeah, they were. They were hellish to keep cool in the summer, as mm-hmm. you can imagine. Yeah, that they was, heat up quick. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That, that was the whole thing. But, yeah, I mean, every year there's maintenance on the poly. We have to get up there and, and make patches. And, and uh, we, we hope to get that five, six years out of the poly, but sometimes sometimes you don't. If there, if an ice storm comes through and ice is over that, that poly on the greenhouse, and the next thing you know you have wind that blows sheets of ice to the next greenhouse, you're going to have tears, and you might have to do a replacement earlier than you wanted. So it's uh, always different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I said nothing per, but the, the, uh, the glass ones are like the ones at Cornell. Those are just expensive. A little more resilient break. to the weather. Yes. Uh, but expensive to build, expensive to maintain when you're talking about replacing sheets of glass. Um, but nice growing environment. No doubt. Mm-hmm. I've ever told you sort of how, Pat Redman and I had this, we had this dream in college that we would take like a 2000 cow dairy with a digester mm-hmm. and we would build, we, we called it a hundred acre greenhouse. So I don't think that's feasible, especially in New York. You take a large, nice. a large, large greenhouse and with that digester would power everything in the greenhouse, heat it, cool it. We have air conditioning, the whole works and we would grow tropical fruits <laughs> and we would sell We'd sell the tropical produce to restaurants in New York City. Imagine you grow bananas, oranges in upstate New York. You got to get with Borman and get it going. Yeah, that's yeah. See, Borman was going to run the digester. We'd run the dairy, the digester, and we'd have this giant greenhouse. I can't imagine the cash it would take to build a greenhouse of that size, though. It it could certainly be done. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Need a a few investors. We can make that happen. 
So, uh, what other kind of practices you guys are? Uh, you were talking about hydroponics and yeah. So something I want to get into before the hydro is uh, I should talk about our our soil operation uh, for the the main greenhouse operation, the bedding plants. Um, so our our soil media comes in from Canada. It's uh, it all comes in as a premix compressed bale. The bales usually weigh anywhere from twenty four hundred to three thousand pounds, um, and we call them towers. And so they, they, they're about nine feet tall and four feet wide. Um, and we bring these, these bales, these towers in to the greenhouse and we have what we call a bale buster. You, you put this bale into the bale buster and it has cutting knives that slowly cut apart this, this bale and send it through a shredder, which, um, after it goes through the shedder, water gets added to make the soil moist. It goes into a conveyor, up the conveyor, and into our flat filler. So our, our flat filler is a, a universal machine that can fill anything from uh, an 806 flat, which is a, a, a flat, uh, just a tray with, um, with packs in it for our ornamental plants. Or it can fill 4-inch pots, 3-inch pots, um, even hanging baskets, um, big planters so it's completely universal to fill whatever we need to um, for the greenhouse operation um, very very effective uh, what we did before we had these these bales these premix towers is we had if you can picture a, a cement truck we had a, a cement mixer off of one of these trucks in the the pole barn and we would we would mix our soil um with different commodities by hand. So we would basically have a recipe and we would fill the cement mixer with our, our soil commodities and we would, we would mix the soil up and then reverse turn the soil out of the cement mixer into our, into our conveyor. And that would then go into the, the flat filler again. But today now we're using the, the towers, the bales, it's all premix, good to go. So it, it saves a ton of time and is much more effective and and getting us where we need to be. Yeah, I'm sure in terms of just pure, just a labor and time of filling mm -hmm. the thing must be. So the, the cement mixer would mix up about two yards of soil. And now today each tower or bale is 10 yards of soil. So it's, it's a, a, a super labor savings. Is that pretty common? Is that what most greenhouses use? Is that sort of uh, use these bales? Yeah, mo most guys are using bales today, premix bales. There are there are a few growers that um, have their own specific mix. They would like to see those, so they're still mixing manually just because they have a spe specific recipe they want to follow. Um, but we're going premix, and uh, it, it's just better for us as an operation overall. Um, saves uh, saves us a lot of time, and it takes care of our, our spring ornamental plants and even our poinsettia plants, um, for the winter months. So, um, I guess that brings us into poinsettias. Our poinsettias, we, we grow roughly 15,000 poinsettias every year for the Christmas season. Uh, we bring them in, in July as a, a rooted cutting, um, as we talked about before. So they, they come to the farm, um, and basically, a foam cube with roots established and we transplant those into the finished pots. We do a, a four inch, a six inch, eight inch and 10 inch poinsettia pot. Um, 
and we fill four of our greenhouses with poinsettias. So they, they grow from July um, all the way through December 25th. Um, we, we ship all the poinsettias early December through Christmas Eve, basically. All the churches want the poinsettias the, the week of Christmas. So we're, we're very busy that, that week of Christmas. Um, this past year with COVID and everything that was going on, um, it was a, a rough poinsettia season. Not so many churches in session. Uh, we do a lot of fundraisers with poinsettias. Um, so schools were, were cut back. So, so not so many fundraisers going on. So it was a rough season poinsettia-wise, but we, we came out of it fine. So um, there's always next year. We'll, we'll try again. But yeah, so that's our, our poinsettia game. So <clears throat> 15,000 plants. So that's that's one greenhouse, you said? Or is that both or two? The the 15,000 plants will take up four of our structures. Four, okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. Once we have them spaced out and they're they're finished spacing. Mm-hmm. I really I think points are very pretty. Yep. Very pretty plants. Uh, you do 10, 10 different colors of uh, poinsettias. So um, red's obviously the, the fan favorite. We grow the most of our, our red variety. And then we have anything ranging from white to pink to, uh, uh, you name it, marbles, um, Picassos, just burgundies, any color you can imagine, we, we grow it. That's just, you order it in that way. Mm-hmm. So yep. when you're ordering this, <coughs> the plants in, where do those are they are they are they grown in New York or are they where are they they're come from? they're growing just down the road actually our cousin farm WD Henry they they grow the the poinsettias um, they take the cuttings off of their mother plants and establish the the unrooted cutting like we talked about earlier they'll um, they'll place that unrooted cutting in in the the foam we call it oasis and they'll establish that root system and then we'll we'll buy the the rooted cutting from wds and bring it over to our farm and and transplant it into the the finished pot mm-hmm. so that, yeah, that's convenient local. yeah very yeah. very it's a quarter mile down the road mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah that's really easy mm-hmm. how about some of the other plants you bring in are they local or do you have to get them from elsewhere so the 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 spring season our our main season um like i said our our cuttings could be coming in from all over the world, Guatemala, Mexico, y- you name it, um, any any tropical area, uh, plants are coming in from, and and some plants are coming local as well. Um, we just had a, a load of plants delivered from Dickman Farms. They're right here in Auburn, so they're they're local. Um, so yeah, uh, anywhere really that plant plant stock are coming in from. Mm-hmm. You don't really think about. Unless you, like I said, unless you start it from seed itself, it's mm-hmm. just more convenient to buy in the, the different, the, the root, different plant species, you know, they price is a factor. Different species will, will cost, um, any, any varying price. So sometimes it's more effective to, to buy, buy seed versus a, a rooted cutting much cheaper. Um, some varieties are obviously more difficult to grow. So it might be easier to go the, the rutted cutting route rather than trying to grow it from seed. Um, so you just got to take all those factors into consideration when, when ordering your plant material and, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're also talking about some hydroponics you guys do. Yeah. So our, our latest experiment you could say is, uh, hydroponics. So 
it's filling that void of our our wholesale vegetable production out in the field. You know, what can we do that time of year that will be more um, more profitable? I guess you could say. So we've I came to my father and we've got we've got greenhouses sitting vacant from from June through December really the greenhouses that aren't in poinsettia production so it'd be nice to put them into use somehow so we figured why not give hydroponics a try so we purchased a NFT system they call it it's called nutrient film technique um, where 24 hours a day seven days a week there's constantly a, a small film of water um, running the bottom of a trough we call them gullies um, so a gully is roughly four inches wide by 10 feet long, two inches tall. So we've, we've currently, got, we currently have 400 of these gullies in one of our greenhouses. So the greenhouse is 5,000 square feet. There's 400 of these gullies in the greenhouse. Each gully holds 15 plants. Um, so that's a total of 6,000 plants that can be in that greenhouse at any given time. Um, and today we have roughly 750 plants coming on per week um, with that size of an operation. Our, our goal is to have a fresh crop coming on every week so we can continuously supply our consumers, our, uh, our clients. Um, so a little bit how the system works. Um, we have a, a nutrient reservoir. It's a 300-gallon water tank. And at, at any given time, there's... 250 gallons of water in this tank and then out in the system there's usually about 100 gallons of water out in the system so we usually have about 350 gallons of water moving around um, the pumps that we use for the system are hot tub pumps so we've got a pump for either side of the greenhouse two pumps um, they're responsible for pumping the water from the nutrient tank out to the gullies and then the gullies are sloped three inches, so it's a basically a gravity drain. They the, the water flows from the top end of the gully down to the bottom into a, a four-inch PVC pipe, and that four-inch PVC pipe gravity drains back to the nutrient reservoir. So it, it's very efficient in that it recycles all of the water. So we've got that 350 gallons of water. The, the system, the lettuce, the 6,000 plants, they consume roughly 50 gallons per day. Um, so the nutrient reservoir is equipped with a, a monitor system to detect when the water level drops below 250. Um, when that water level drops below 250 gallon, it'll automatically add water, fresh water back into the system to maintain that level. So it, it's, uh, very good at keeping an eye on, on water level. There's a onboard computer that I input our our water pH and our water fertilizer content into. So water pH coming off the street, coming out of the hose is usually around 8.0. And for lettuce, we want our pH to be 5.8. So we use an acid to bring that, that pH down to 5.8 from 8.0. And then our, our fertilizers, they call it EC, we want our EC to be anywhere from 1.6 to 2.0, and coming out of the hose, it's roughly 0.0, so 
virtually no fertilizer in, in the water coming out of the hose. So we, we add the fertilizer into the water in the system there. So the computer has basically three pumps that correspond with three different 55-gallon uh, tanks. And in two of the tanks, I have two different fertilizers. I have our NPK, our nitrogen, potassium, and uh, phosphorus in one tank. I have uh, a calcium in the second tank. Um, and in the third tank, I have that acid. So the computer will automatically pump both the fertilizers and the acid into the nutrient reservoir to bring those levels where I need them to be, the 1.6 and the, and the uh, 5.8. And naturally, when the system adds fresh water into the reservoir, it will dilute the solution. So that's when the computer picks up on it and adds fertilizer and acid back into the system. So it's a, a very intelligent system and it takes care of itself. It just needs to be babysat. So I'm in there at least three, four times a day to make sure everything's running as it should. Um, and uh, there's many times where it's not running as it should. Uh, tonight, just before I came, I uh, stopped in the greenhouse to make sure everything was running fine and it wasn't running at all. Um, so I had to uh, basically jumpstart the pumps and get them going again to get water flowing. Um, but very cool system, very effective. Um, yeah, it's That's uh, cool. Wow. Hydroponic uh, vegetables, greenhouse vegetables, uh, it accounts for roughly 2% of the world's vegetable production. And it's, uh, in my opinion, certainly the, the way of the future. It's, it's very efficient in that 5,000 square feet. Um, in one year, we can produce 40,000 lettuce plants. Um, that's tons and tons of, of lettuce. Uh, weight-wise, um, and in one small space, that's a tenth of an acre. So, uh, where to do that field production would be a much different scenario, acreage-wise. Yeah, and just the whole, uh, <clears throat> you know, fifty gallons of, wa of water of fertilizer is a lot, but still, for that many plants and that, it's so efficient how it uses water. So you're figuring those six thousand plants unreal. in that greenhouse are consuming about fifty gallons of water a day. Yeah. Yep. And that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that's really not, it's a lot, but it's not. Versus if you're, yeah. if you're overhead irrigating 6,000 lettuce plants out in the field on a sunny day, a lot of that water is going to evaporate before it even hits the ground. So, um, it's, it's very efficient in water usage. You think that's kind of, is that the way greenhouses are going? Hydroponics more, or do you think there's always going to be the traditional, you know, potted, you know, dirt? With the, uh... Yeah, you're always going to have the, the soil, uh, the potted plants. Um, but hydroponically, hydroponics is certainly new and upcoming and very efficient um, way of, of growing. It's a very clean system. There's virtually no soil in the system. Um, people always ask, you know, how do we get the, the lettuce to root? And what we use is called rock wool. It's a natural substance. We, we seed the lettuce into rock wool cubes. And that's what gives the lettuce plant structure to, to root into. Um, so from the day we seed the lettuce into the rock, well, we seed it into a tray. We give the lettuce 14 days in that tray to germinate. And at day 14, the lettuce plant has a root system. It's um, about an inch tall. And so at that day 14 mark, we'll then 
transplant it into the hydroponic system in the greenhouse um, where the, they're, they're spaced eight inches apart. Um, and the, the water is then flowing 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's always on. Hmm. What variety of lettuce is this? So we're doing, we're doing five different varieties right now. Green leaf, uh, a red leaf, red Boston, your standard Boston and a romaine. Okay. Um, uh, romaine's been very hot with, uh, everything that's been going on, uh, related to romaine E. coli wise. Um, it's, uh, very hydroponically, it's very clean. Um, no, no issues there. So, um, that's been a, a very hot commodity for, for restaurants. Um, fortunately for us, we have a, a market right across the street. So the market is literally taking anything we're able to produce. So he's taking all 750 heads per week, um, that we're able to grow. And uh, he's got a second location opening up uh, this spring, so he's going to be looking for more. That's right across the right road. Right across the street. Yeah. Wow, mm-hmm. that's very convenient. Mm-hmm. You sell them other stuff, or just lettuce? Yeah, for we now? we sell them uh, ornamental plants in the spring as okay. well. Poinsettia plants in the winter. Oh, um, yeah. And uh, this this lettuce program is is now year round. We're growing lettuce year round in the greenhouse, uh, which presents its challenges because in the in the summer months in June July. You know, when it's when it's 80 and sunny outside, it is um, 100, 110 in the greenhouse. And when you're naturally venting a greenhouse, it just it can't cool down to that 80 degree mark that the outside is. Um, so it, it presents a challenge. Um, but as long as the water is flowing on those lettuce plants, they, they pull through just fine. Um, and then in the winter, obviously, when it's when it's cold outside, you're, you're pumping that greenhouse full of heat. So your, uh, your cost per lettuce plant goes drastically up, um, but you are able to, to grow year-round. That probably has more of a value to it if you're able to sell fresh lettuce right. in that's January. The, that's the key is you're able to produce and supply this consistent product year-round that the consumer can go to the, the grocery and count on it being there and it always being there. So. Yeah. So how, like, I know a lot of romaine and like you're saying with the E. coli, you hear about it in Arizona and California and you know how hot it gets out there. Do mm-hmm. they have issues with the heat, you know, hundred, 110 degree weather, as you were saying in the greenhouse, it gets so hot and it mm-hmm. can be detrimental. Is that similar out there? Or is it, since it's outside open, it's, it's not a, it's not going to be as much of an issue being out in the elements, but heat's. It's it's a factor. So as long as you're keeping them ir- irrigated, they're going to pull through just okay. fine. But lettuce is a cool season crop, so it's more of a spring crop and a fall crop rather than a summer crop. So you're not so much going to see lettuce planted outdoors in the peak of summer, um, but we are able to squeak it through a greenhouse in the summer months. Yeah, just really be really be watchful. Keep that water flowing. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. who you don't want it to mm-hmm. shut down at if all. If the water's shut down in the summertime at 110 degrees in the greenhouse, they will be obliterated within minutes so got to keep an eye on it for sure yeah and we do want to get the greenhouse the the hydroponic greenhouse to the point technologically that we're able to monitor it on our cell phones and um, alarms being sent to our cell phones to let us know if the water goes down if the heat goes down if there's any sort of issue over there um, to let us know right away so there's no no downtime in getting that fixed no 
Mm-hmm. I'm sure it won't be long. I'm sure they're out there. You just have to imagine a matter of getting yeah, that technology. It's just it's getting the, it implemented. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, and then, uh, as you know, in New York State, we're in one of the darkest regions in the country in the winter months. So light is an issue for the lettuce. So we bring in supplemental lighting, um, all LED lighting. Uh, we bring in and we run the LED lights for 16 hours a day. Um, so they're on from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. at night. And then they give the lettuce a eight-hour rest period from, from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Um, but every day we have the lights on, whether it's sunny or not. And it, it makes sure to give that lettuce what it needs. Mm-hmm. I'll have to, I'm never out that way. I'll definitely have to stop. And that's, it'd be really cool to see this mm-hmm. place, the setup you have. And uh, it's, it's amazing technology. You, you really don't even need a greenhouse anymore to, to grow things hydroponically. You just need um, grow lights. You can do it right at your own home, right in your basement, wherever you uh, can get set up. Um, a lot of hydroponic operations today aren't, even being set up in a greenhouse or being set up in uh, train cars or or vertical farming, they call it, where urban settings, they're, they're building skyscrapers and every level of this building is equipped with LED lights to, to grow leafy greens. So they're able to grow fresh leafy greens right in a, a city, city setting, um, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My brother... He's kind of into kind of greenhouse stuff and mm-hmm. just toying around with growing stuff. And he was into like called microgreens, I think. Yeah. Yep. And he was like showing me videos, and this guy had, isn't like his basement. He had trays of these, <laughs> and he goes through it and he like cuts them with scissors, and he and he sells them. He makes really good money. Yeah. Doing so that. microgreens, you you seed them, and literally days later as they're germinating when they have basically just two little baby leaves is when you harvest them and you get them off to market um yeah very very big industry today um but for us as a an operation we we see um the lettuce is more of a better route to go um we have roughly 60 days invested into a head of lettuce uh through the winter months we're able to get that down to 45 days in the summer when there's more natural light. Um, so yeah, from that from the day we seed that lettuce plant to the day we ship it out the door, it's either 45 or 60 days. So uh, the key to success with the, the hydroponic lettuce is that your t- turnover rate is so rapid that you're able to get so many crops through that greenhouse per week. So looking at it from a year standpoint, we're able to get you know, 50, 53 crops out of that greenhouse. Um, so we're moving a lot of plant material. Compared to if you were to be out outside. Out in the field, you're talking one, two, maybe three crops in that season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and then you have to deal with the elements and right. pests. And right. Where in the greenhouse, you're, you know, you're trying to create that perfect growing environment. And uh, for the most part, we do, but there's... You know, Mother Nature, she'll she'll heat that greenhouse up real quick, and yeah, and snowstorms come through. We got to worry about the structure and uh, making sure everything's operating as it should. Everything's a challenge, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Always. <laughs> so something that's kind of uh, is there more anything else you want in terms of uh, hydroponics or anything for the greenhouses? Um, I think we've I think we've covered it there. Okay. Yeah. 
Anything you want to talk about? No, I was just, <clears throat> we were kind of talking earlier about how we both, uh, we did the abroad, both did the abroad trip to New Zealand. Yeah. Like separate, separate times. Yeah, separate we years. both went to the same mm-hmm. school when we were over there. I, I vividly remember coming to you in AGR because I, I knew you had gone to New Zealand and uh, I uh, definitely wanted your opinion on whether or not to, to go and you obviously highly recommended it. Um, so, I mean, Cornell gave us such a wonderful experience, uh, when it came to traveling, uh, whether it was CUDS, the dairy science program, I I made sure to be involved in because even as a a greenhouse operation, I wanted to be exposed to, to different ag operations, whether it be dairy or greenhouse or vegetable or, or vineyard, you know, so it's nice to be exposed to everything. and, And Cornell certainly did that. Um, so, so yeah, it came time to think about going abroad and it was my, my, uh, fall semester, junior year I went, um, and I was the, the only one to go at the time. Um, so, you know, pretty intimidating to head out for New Zealand alone and, you know, it takes four planes and 33 hours to get there and, um, but, uh, what, what a trip. Change in season. <laughs> <laughs> 17 hours ahead of your, uh, your family time. And, yeah. um, but absolutely amazing country. If I could uproot the farm and relocate it somewhere, it would 110% be the South Island of, of New Zealand. Um, 4 million people to 40 million sheep, just sheep everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> you aren't, you aren't, he's not even exaggerating. Literally everywhere. doesn't matter where you drive. And I, I made sure to take sheep classes while I was there, and uh, I studied wine. Uh, studied a lot of wine while I was down in New Zealand, and uh, made a lot of great friends. Uh, yeah, so uh, made sure to buy a car as soon as I got there, and uh, traveled the the country every weekend. Um, every weekend we were, my friends and I were going somewhere different in the country, uh, whether it be the South Island or the North Island. Um, we put a ton of miles on that car in uh, five short months. So uh, very, very great experience. Mm-hmm. I just, the, uh, what I always found so fascinating was the fact that, you know, living in the U.S., going three hours would be basically from getting from my house to your house. Yep. In New York State, where you go coast to coast in three <laughs> hours, and you can go from beaches to foothills to mountains to foothills right. to plains. It's the geography is unreal. You can literally go skiing and go to the beach in the same day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember, did you ski at all? I did. Yep. Did mm-hmm. you go to, uh, was it Mount Hutt? That's the one I went to, I think. It probably was. I can't even remember at, at this time. But um. What was cool about it was we were there. So we skied right at the end because it was June. So winter was just really kicking off when okay. we left. And it was probably early June. And Tyler, Mark, and I, and Pierce, our other buddy, there's a picture where we're up in the mountains and then down below is the Canterbury Plains. Okay. And it's just a green, everything's green and it's sunny and mm-hmm. we're, it's like 20 degrees where we are. It's just cool. Then you go, yeah. Then you go back down and you take your clothes off and you get into, um, you know, shorts and t-shirt and it's 65 degrees. Mm-hmm. It was really cool. Yeah. But that's wonderful people, uh, outgoing, you know, uh, just very, very nice people. So, um, uh, I would like to get back there someday, I hope, um, and uh, tour the country again. Mm-hmm. Did you make it 
did you make it up in the North Island? Mark? Yeah, I did. Uh, we put we put our car on the ferry and and got up into the North Island. We, you know, went and toured uh, Hobbiton, the the movie set for the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, and uh, and uh, got all over uh, different hostel every night, different B and Bs. So easy to travel <laughs> in that place. <laughs> some good hostel experiences and some uh. bad, but but uh, wouldn't trade it for anything and. Um, yeah, so, mm-hmm. yeah, and, uh, I don't even think I ever saw a greenhouse when I was over there. Was there any greenhouse stuff in New Zealand? I saw very few. There, there were some there, but, but not many, um, sheep seemed to be the main and, uh, deer, they farmed a lot of deer mm-hmm. and, uh, and vineyards, uh, lots of, lots of grapes over there. So, um, saw a lot of great wineries and. Um, I was able to get my folks over there for a week. Uh, oh, did you? Yeah, they don't they cool. don't travel much with the farm, but um, yeah, we were able to get them down in New Zealand for a week. So I toured them around and uh, got to show them the the entire South Island in seven days. So spent the bulk of it in Queenstown and uh, oh, had a blast place. down there. Uh, skydiving, bungee jumping. It was it was uh, that was the place to be. Great night scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love. I call. I call Queenstown the the Vegas of New Zealand. <laughs> it's <laughs> anything accurate. goes. Yeah, it's it's just a party city. It doesn't matter what night of the, what great, day of the week. Great bar scene. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a lot of fun. Um. Oh, something else I was gonna ask you. Uh. Oh, it was. It'll come back mm-hmm. to me, but uh, it'll come to you. Yeah. Um. No, no. Like I said, it'll come back to me eventually. Yeah, just Cornell in general pro- providing all the experiences to to travel abroad, uh, whether it was New Zealand or Germany. You were with you were with me in Germany, um, or uh, Easter Island. We were studying biodiversity and plants on Easter Island. And, yeah, you went on that trip. Yeah, what was that? I remember you going kind of vaguely. It was that was kind of a different trip, wasn't it? Yeah. So so fifteen of us got to go to Easter <clears throat> Island, which is just off the coast of uh, South America, uh, off the coast of Chile, about 2,000 miles, so very, very remote island. Um, and we went there to study biodiversity of plants because the island was basically devastated of all its plant material at one time. So at, at this point today, it's basically regrowing its plant plant material. So we went there to study it and see how it was doing. Um and that's uh, where the Moai statues are that you iconically see all over. And um, very, very small island. Uh, one plane comes in, one plane leaves per day. Um, and uh, very different culture. A um, lot of fun, fun bar scene. Uh, but uh, yeah, we had a good experience down there. How so. many people actually live on the island? Do you know? Uh, I, I couldn't tell you now. It's been too long. But not not many is it basically just one like city yeah and that's absolutely and then it's yeah yeah one one city and then you know your outskirts um you you could basically go to the highest point of the island and do a 360 view of the the ocean so uh very small wow Mm -hmm. so the plane ride out it said how how many miles off two thousand miles off the coast of chile so geez so that's a that's quite a plane yeah so we we flew from the from Buffalo down to Florida, and then Florida down to Chile, and then Chile over to um, 
Easter Island, and we we did spend a day in in Chile there, yeah, so got to tour around there as well. Mm-hmm. Do you like South? I guess you're only there a day or so. Would you like South Chile? South? Would you go back down there? Yeah. Oh yeah. The, yeah. It was very nice. Very uh, different culture, but nice to be exposed to. The people who live on Easter Island are they? mostly like native south americans yes. or are they from all over the world no, people native. are like so, okay yeah just Absolutely. a lot of researchers mm-hmm. yeah 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 that's cool i forgot you did that trip yeah you it was a great lot. trip you did a lot of traveling yeah I, I didn't necessarily you know have a huge desire to travel when i got to cornell but they started providing so many opportunities to to get out and travel you just had to take advantage and um new zealand especially i mean you're you just had to do it. Uh, so it was uh, an unreal experience, really. Especially when you know, you know, post-college, you go back to the farm. More mm-hmm. likely than not, you're going to be, you won't have many opportunities to get away. First, right. the period that you're able to get away, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a week here or there. But Right, to, uh, to go to New Zealand for basically <laughs> at-cost tuition, you know, of college is a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, with, with – uh, with all of us being at our farms today, we don't have a ton of time to travel, so definitely good to take advantage while you can. Mm-hmm. So do you do, now when you're on the farm, do you get away much, or are you more or less tied down? Uh, pretty well tied down. Our, our slowest time of year is that June mark, when all the ornamental plants are out of the greenhouse. Um, so my, my wife and I, Kayla, we, we love to go camping, so we, we do have a, a camping trip planned for for this June up to the Adirondacks. Um, so hopefully we can make that happen. Um, but you know, uh, weekend trips are more than possible and, uh, we can certainly get away if it's, if it's planned for. So, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what, what kind of other things do you like to do when you're not working on the farm? Well, I'm a, I'm a total, you know, I'm a total gearhead. If it's got wheels and a motor, I love it. And I, I want to be involved with it. Um, so classic cars are a, a huge uh, hobby of mine. Um, I have an old truck myself, and my, my dad has a Chevelle. Um, so we're always tinkering with those, and uh, I'm a huge motorcycle guy. Um, I'm uh, between Harleys right now. I, I love everything about Harley-Davidson. Uh, I did have to, to sell off the Harley to help finance the kitchen remodel. Um, but that's you know that's how things go, so... Hopefully there's another Harley coming down the line at some point. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, my wife and I were in the middle of, uh, remodeling a farmhouse and, uh, it's the original farmhouse on the, on the property there. So it was built in the 1930s and it was pretty well original when I got back to it. So we're doing a, a full, full gut, full remodel and we're about halfway through it at this point. The entire downstairs is renovated. So, um, I've seen some. Did you do that yourself, or are you hired now? Or? No, I, I had a, I had plenty of help from my my brother in law, especially okay. he's a contractor, so he was uh, he was helping me out a ton. Um, anything I could do, I would do it. But he was uh, the 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 main brains behind the operation. It looks, I saw some of the pictures on Facebook. Really, really Thank nice. You. Yeah. Thank you. Very. Yeah. So it's uh, it's coming along just fine. So, um, but uh, it takes time. So labor of love. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it's uh, worth to do once it's all said and done. And 
by the time you're done, you can start back. Oh, that's what my parents, they went I know, I, remodeled yeah, everything. Yeah. It's like, well, once you're done, you can start, start back, back at the, the new first room. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, man. But yeah, so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's busy at home. We're having a, having a good time. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you got married and you're. Yeah. Kenny and I have been married for over a year now. And, uh, our little one, Kenny, she's, uh, she's almost eight months now. Um, we named her after my grandfather, Kenneth. Um, our, our farm is called Kenneth Henry Sons, and we, we named our daughter Kenny Kennedy. Um, so we call her Kenny, so Kenny Henry's back on the farm. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's busy. She's doing really well. She's cutting teeth and not sleeping very well, but, no. but she's, a, she's a bundle of joy. You can't help but smile when you look at her, so we're, we're, we're crazy about her. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Congrats on all the Thank wedding. You. I haven't, like I said, I know I haven't it's seen you since any time. of that. And it's, you know, <laughs> if you see, if if it's not on Facebook, you don't know about it. I mm-hmm. guess, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I guess if you weren't into farming, ooh, you know that question's coming. Yeah, I know this question. You know it's coming. Uh, what What do you think you'd be? You'd be I doing? would a hundred and ten percent be a gold miner up in the Yukon. Are you into the show Gold Rush? <laughs> I I do thoroughly enjoy the the show Gold Rush. Um, I would I would only consider it first of all if I wasn't an egg. Egg is what I want to do. It's what I love to do. Um, but I do I do like that gold mining. You're you're basically responsible for your well being, your your future. Uh, what you put in is is what you get out. And uh, it, it would it would have to be a family operation as well because I, I'm a family man. I got to be with the family, I wouldn't be able to, you know, go up to the Yukon for seven months away from the family and, and be away from them. So it would have to be a family operation up there, but yeah, there's something about moving dirt and washing rocks that is pretty fascinating, but, uh, yeah. So, uh, funny, but pretty cool. I enjoy it. You like your, you like heavy equipment. Working yeah, that stuff I mean, too. yeah. I, I grew up on heavy equipment, so it's it's very familiar, and um, it's uh, it's just another fascinating industry to me. Uh, uh, gold mining, so uh, definitely an interest. Mm-hmm. As long yeah. as you, as long as you find something, right? <laughs> <laughs> go broke very fast. Yeah, yeah that's the one thing where it's like the amount of money you can sink into those. Mm-hmm. I get you know based on what I see on the show. I know, I know, and I, know, it's yeah. it's like it's so romanticized yeah. on the show, right? So <laughs> yeah, but still, it's like man, you can dump millions mm-hmm. into a plot, or you know, and and dig it all up and run it through your wash plant and get like nothing. So right, right. you must watch a little bit of it then. Yeah, yeah, I have. I yeah. I don't have cable or anything, mm-hmm. so I haven't watched in a while, but. It was always on a room in EGR. It's usually a couple guys <laughs> watch, so I would catch it here and there. I think Luke Luke was into was he? watching yeah. it usually, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And I watch it. It is it is great entertainment. I mean, as long as you're actively prospecting for you know good gold, I think I think you can come out of it okay. But if you're just running dirt for the sake of running dirt, you might not come out on top yeah like you said it gets almost romanticized or it's like oh very much so yeah I'm sure people do that with agriculture sometimes <laughs> too it's like uh, you know it is a business you know it is gotta gotta make something at the end of the day agriculture is 110 percent what i want to be in it's the most resilient group of people i've ever met in my life you know it, uh, 
they're uh they're they're so passionate about what they do and um bringing things to the table that they're it's just a great industry so i'm happy to be a part and uh look forward to what's to come yeah four generations too that's impressive yeah and fifth fifth is here and hopefully more on the way uh, i want kenny to have all the all the animals on the farm so uh you know we've got horses and she's going to be getting her first duck this spring so we'll take her out in search of her first duck and and uh get her going get them started young <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and uh, uh, Kayla's making you know a, a ton of sacrifices. She's a workaholic, and uh, she's she's made a ton of sacrifices to stay home and and uh, to to raise Kenny, and so she can be home on the farm and and uh, you know have a, a similar upbringing. So uh, very appreciative for that. Yeah, that's a it's a good way to raise kids. I think mm-hmm. absolutely, especially there's, when there's you, no better way. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. You, you you learn a lot about life and hard work, which is no doubt. You mm-hmm. can't can't teach that in school. Nope. <laughs> nope. Mm-hmm. But yeah. anyway, anything else you'd like to chat about? Well, I think I'm. Uh, I think I've hit every everything. Unless you have anything you want to talk about. I think yeah. I think we just about nailed it all. Um, yeah, no, I think it was a lot of fun having you on, man. I appreciate you having me here. I was looking forward to it and had a great time. Yeah, and uh, we'll we'll do this again at some point down the road. Sounds we'll, like a plan. We'll, we'll do a 2.0. So. <laughs> anyway, sounds good. Jason. Man, thank you. Thank you. Of course. No worries. And uh, thanks, everyone. For- looking forward to the next episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks, everyone, for watching. And uh, yeah, I'll catch you in the next episode.